Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. Fleeting Agencies, A Social History of Indian Coolie Women in British Malaya um, by Arunima Data, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, disrupts the male-dominated narratives of coolie labour by focusing on gendered patterns of migration and showing how South Asian women labour migrants engaged with the process of migration, interacted with other migrants and negotiated colonial laws. This is the first and only study of Indian coolie women in British Malaya to date. In exploring the politicization of labor migration trends and gender relations in the colonial plantation society of British Malaya, Data foregrounds how the migrant Indian coolie women manipulated colonial legal and administrative perceptions of Indian women, their gender prescriptive roles and relations within patriarchal marriage institutions, and even the emerging Indian national independence movement in Malaysia, in Malaya and India. All this to ensure their survival escape from unfavorable relations and situations, and improve their lives. The book also introduces the concept of situational or fleeting agency, which importantly contributes to further a nuanced understanding of agency in the lives of Indian Kuli women. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk not just about Professor Arani Modata's approach to writing history, but also the histories of empire, labor, and new avenues for thinking about agency. To learn about these issues and more, Join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk with Professor Arun Data, the author of the wonderful book, Fleeting Agencies, A Social History of Indian Coolie Women in British Malaya. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn both about the history of Indian coolie labor in Malaya, but also about how migrant coolie women exerted agency under untenable circumstances. Dr. Aruni Modata is a historian of South and Southeast Asia and the British Empire. Her main areas of research focuses on the transnational mobility of South Asians in the colonial period, which is to say the 19th and 20th centuries, across different parts of the British Empire. Much of Dr. Data's research has simultaneously also focused on themes of labor history, transnational Indian nationalism, women's and gender history, and histories of sexuality. In addition to fleeting agencies, she has also published a number of articles and chapters concerning South Asian labor, migration, and women's histories. Her current research project is centered around the migration and mobility of Indian traveling ayahs, or nannies, across the British Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries. Dr. Data also serves as a member of the editorial board for the journals Gender and History, the Journal of the Malaysian Branch of the Royal Asiatic Society, and the Asian Journal of Social Science Studies. Welcome, Arunima, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your enjoyable and deeply informative book today. So can you start us off by saying just a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you had? Thank you so much for having me on this podcast, Kelvin. It is an absolute honor to feature in this podcast and be interviewed by you. Um, so let's 
start off with what you asked, right? How I, uh, where I grew up and how I got interested and my mentors. Um, so I had a very complex growing up <laughs> experience because um, I was born in India, but my parents migrated to the U.S. when I was really um, a little child. And so my early schooling was kind of divided between India and U.S., but also for familial uh, reasons, we had to go back to India um, when I was um, in middle school. And then again, my parents came back to the U.S. when I was in um, junior high. So um, and then they returned and then I moved to Singapore. So literally my growing up, my education has been very much influenced uh, by these migratory trends that me and my family had. And throughout this whole migration experience, um, my mom actually um, kept a diary, which I used to call, my dad used to call an archival document, which I picked up from him, not knowing what an archival document was at that point of time. Um, and uh, to be honest, that was my first introduction into history, even before I became a historian. So um, she would... Um, pen down all the experiences um, our family would have in these dif different spaces. Um, and also in many ways, whenever we returned to India, um, she noticed I was having issues kind of connecting with a lot of my Indian uh, friends or families because of the weird accent I had developed by growing up in different spaces. So she actually maintained a very detailed record. And that got me interested in South Asian migration and experiences. So that was literally my um introduction into migration history and migration um, stories. Um, and that kind of personal experience with mobility quickly translated into an academic inquiry about mobility when I was doing my master's. So during my master's, I specialized in Southeast Asian studies and I was struck by the absence of scholarship on women migrant labor, um, especially South Asian women migrant labor in um, Southeast Asia. Whereas I was finding their presence constantly in census reports, in ship manifests, in postcards, uh, various labor department reports. But for some reason, there was an absolute silence um, when it came to scholarship and literature being produced about them. And I got very much interested um, in that absence and took it up to explore what are these silences? Why are these silences? Can we contribute to those um, silences and making those muted voices of um, the Kuli women and other South Asian women in Southeast Asia more audible? And in that process, I entered naively into the research phase, and I started by just going into tapping into my friends and uh, family networks in Singapore and South, uh, in Malaysia and asking uh, people around, like, if they knew people, uh, survi coolie survivors, and 
the first interview I did was um, with an ex-Kuli woman who basically said, we made the rubber empire. We made the rubber king. And that statement struck me. Um, and I just knew from that moment that this is a history waiting to be told. And this is the history I'm going to explore. Um, so that's how I basically got introduced into this um research and um you know throughout the process i've had many 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 mentors influential mentors as i mentioned from the very beginning you know the personal mentors i had was my mom and my dad who really helped me understand the the mobility experiences of migrants um amongst south in the south asian community uh but also i had uh, professional and academic mentors like sunil amrit Vinita Sinha, Barbara Andaya, uh, Indrani Chatterjee, who have constantly supported my work and um, been extremely supportive, nurturing mentors. But I also had textual mentors whose work I have engaged with on the textual, um, uh, you know, space, but I haven't had the good fortune of, you know, personally connecting with them, but their work remained as textual mentors for me. And they were, they were basically the pillars of strength and courage for me whenever I found archival challenges and silences. And these textual mentors are mainly um, Veena Das, Leela Abulogod, uh, Carolyn Steedman, and of course, the wonderful Anjali Arondekar's work. Um, so um, these are the mentors and the background, like in the beginning kind of story where I began this project from. Thank you so much. And I think that it really is a testament to the strength and the intervention that your book is making that it's such a beautiful constellation of all these different themes. On one hand, South Asian, global South Asian histories, but also on the other hand, sort of bringing feminist methodologies and interventions to bear on that history of mobility. So as a historian of South Asia and British Malaya, can you tell us about how you became interested in the question of labor migration specifically? And share with us a little bit on what can South Asian history and Southeast Asian history, which are two sort of area studies fields gain from transnational studies? Um, so I will begin by kind of rehashing what I just mentioned in the introductory phase that my personal experiences with mobility, with migration, quickly translated into an academic inquiry about mobility, but also, um, you know, South Asia and Southeast Asian histories um, for a very long time had been very much influenced by the disconnect, by the colonial knowledge boundaries that were created by colonizers. And uh, they, they remained as fields which were inward looking and not so much outward looking. So my work basically um, brings in that um, Follow in, in following the footsteps of, you know, very um, important scholars like Sunil Amrith, um, Barbara Andaya, um, it, it basically highlights the fact that for a very long time, South Asia and Southeast Asian histories have privileged the colonial knowledge of um, nation his national histories, right? And it has resulted in privileging partial and disconnected histories. 
looking at um, the histories of these two regions through the bodies, through the experiences of um, the migrants, right? I joined the Indian Ocean scholars um, to make the effort of uh, looking into the connections, the history of connections, which reveal lesser known histories of these regions, but also help us reveal less, lesser known um, histories about how the empire functioned and colonial history of um, whole of Asia, inter-Asia connections in that respect. Thank you so much for that. And um, now let us turn to the book and its chapters, because this book really addresses a broad range of archival material and thematic concerns, while providing a very fine-grained microhistory of the lives of its historical subjects. So tell us a bit more about how you came to write Fleeting Agencies. You had mentioned that you uh, had conducted oral interviews with um, many former coolie women, but what archives did you turn to and what was the broader research process like? Um, and how how was your writing experience while writing this book? So the research process and the writing process was as fragmented as the voices and the presence of these subjects in my research. One of the main challenges of doing a transnational history is that the records that we deal with are scattered across various geopolitical spaces. So this research basically took me to various archives in India, mainly in Delhi, Kolkata, Chennai, in Malaysia, um, Archive Negara in KL, Penang, Perak archives in Singapore, but also um, it took me to London, of course, British Library and uh, the National Archives of London, and also in US. Some of the labor de documents, the labor department records that I found in London or even Malaysia, I found them only for a few number of years. And there was an absolute silence after a couple of records. Um, and all of a sudden, I was at a conference in Cornell, and I was just kind of peeking my head into the um, special collections available at Cornell. And I found the rest of those other like um, labor documents, right, um, stored there as microfilms. And so when I say the research process and the writing process was fragmented, it was fragmented like this uh, in the sense that the writing and the research took place in segments. And um, every time I wrote a chapter um, based in Malaysia or London, I wrote thinking there was no other uh, records probably that survive. But of course, uh, going into my jaunts in various other archives, I found other sources that meant or rather that translated into writing and rewriting these new discoveries that I made in various geopolitical spaces um, so um, it, it was a constant struggle, but also negotiation to find and capture these fragmented moments of appearance and disappearances of these muted voices of these subjects. And um, if I was to put it in a nutshell, I think I would just say that it was a struggle. It was a struggle to find a word that captured their episodic, fleeting, 
transient appearances um, amongst the longer periods of disappearance till the word fleeting and situational suddenly, literally suddenly appeared from my processing of their voices or rather muted voices while they were appearing in these various archives. Thank you so much for that. And I think that the sort of um, really insight of your work is how it analyzes and investigates um, not simply by reading against the grain and engaging, like you said, in such innovative investigative work, but more importantly, also reading along the grain as Anstola terms it and illustrating the conceptual labor that the term coolie was put to use across different contexts. Um, so perhaps here we should scale back a bit and have you elaborate a little bit on the genealogy of the term coolie because it's quite a contested term, I think. How did it emerge as a colonial category in nationalist discourses, and as a lived subjectivity? And what were its class, race, caste, and gendered connotations? Thank you for that question. In fact, um, when I started um, working on this project, um, I saw in my various kind of dealing with different archives, right? Oral histories, um, postcards, pictures, um, labor documents, census, I saw the coolie term being used in a various ways, like it, they were really varied. And so that took me to kind of asking the people themselves who were associated with the coolie work, what do you feel about it, right? Um, and soon it became evident that there was, uh, there is this whole um conversation about where did the coolie term come from? Was it a Chinese word? Was it a Tamil word? Uh, was it a Sanskrit word? Um, so without going into that discussion, I think whichever language we try to find the roots of this word in, um, it translates into manual hard labor. And that is how these um, traditional usage of this term was associated with in Asia. Now, when the colonizers arrived and they encountered this term um, as a term for hard labor, manual labor, they just adopted that word into their documentation of labor. So if we look at the labor documents, um, it's almost like um, the coolie term had been used by colonial administrators just as the word slave, servants uh, were used, uh, right, to kind of uh, categorize a, a labor class. However, soon um, there were a lot of um, stereotypes that the colonial administrators started um, associating with the term coolie. Um, in some spaces, it became associated with um, intoxication, immorality, um, lazy um, laborers, while in other spaces, it became associated with, oh, these are easy laborers that we can train and work to uh, the greatest extent of exploitation. 
So I think that what that's how the Kuli term features in colonial records and colonial discourses, right? Uh, but soon we find that even in the nationalist discourses, the Kuli term becomes um, adopted from the colonial perspective, right? The nationalist discourses did not make any effort to counter those stereotypes and um, return the the true meaning of the term Kuli to its usage. Rather, they took up the, the understanding from the colonial discourses and said, yes, the colonizers are making our uh, fellow brethren um, lazy or immoral, or they are basically subjecting them to intoxication and making them addicts. So it is our responsibility to save them. So Cooley word that time becomes um, a word, a word, a category of people, a community of people who needs nationalist saving from the colonialists. So that's how the the Cooley term enters the uh, nationalist discourses. Now, the most interesting part is how did these Cooley individuals, um, men and women, and even children, uh, perceive this term? And that is where I found it the most interesting, because in my conversations with um, the first generation Cooley women who I was so fortunate to interview, they actually said they associated themselves very well with the term coolie because it was a signif- it was basically highlighting their significance to the making of this nation so in through the word coolie they were kind of negotiating a form of belonging to this, um, to the country of Malaysia, Singapore, um, because they had literally contributed to the making of the rubber empire, right? However, when I was talking to their descendants, right, the third or the fourth, the third generation mainly, um, they refused to use the word coolie. They rather consciously use the word workers. And that kind of is rooted in the more colonial and contemporary kind of usage of the term coolie in a derogatory way, right? It is it is kind of a way of telling certain communities of people that they are associated with the stereotypes that were constructed by the colonialists and also kind of um, disassociating them as uh, you know, belonging to the soil. So there is this kind of two ways of interpreting the Cooley term. And instead of going one way or the other, I just used it as the way I encountered it in in the archival records, which is a form of labor. And also as the Cooley women themselves kind of um, engaged with the term. And in that process, I also believe that my book democratizes the term, the usage of the term coolie, because like Gautri Bahadur's work, um, my work acknowledges the fact that the term coolie is associated with the women as much as men. So in other words, uh, coolie women were coolies in their own right and not just um, relatives of their male coolies or family coolie members. 
Thank you so much for that really thoughtful response. And I think that that's also kind of linked to one of the most significant contributions of your book, which is this term that you coined situational agency in a way to recognize the power in these women reclaiming the, uh, the label coolie. That is also an act of them at asserting their agency, right? And the term agency, of course, has been among the most contested terms in the discipline of history and especially in feminist histories in the wake of, for example, Judith Butler's idea of performativity as a theory of agency, Osaba Mahmoud's uh, critique of the presumed universality of agency. So how does your frame of situational agency or fleeting agency reevaluate the term itself? And what sorts of analytic possibilities does it open up? Thank you for that question. So um, in very many ways, my... Um use of the term situational agency actually follows um, the footsteps of Butler and Mahmoud, but it kind of goes forward a bit to open up possibilities to focus on the everyday of the agency, right? Um, in the way that it kind of uh, borrows the framework of giving more importance to the everyday, the non-theatrical everydays instead of just the events. Um, like Vina Das's work, right? Um, and in so I think my work is a confluence of various waves of scholarship, the subaltern scholarship, um, the subaltern study scholarship, the feminist scholarship, and also the everyday history. And the three main things that that allows me to do is focus on the temporality the transience, the everyday or non-theatrical, and both the visible and invisible um, ex kind of um, exhibition of agency, right? Um, and in that sense, my work allows us to see individual not necessarily just as a victim or just as a um, an agential actor, but as an individual within whose body, within whose persona, we see a constant and simultaneous existence of a victim and a um, and an agent right so i think two things uh my work allows us to see that um to be an agent one individual does not have to be an agent permanently and second it um that the person does not necessarily have to be an agent in a theatrical way and in a constant way, right? In While being an agent, most of these women were also being victims simultaneously. And that complexity of the term agency is something that fleeting agency and situational agency particularly kind of allows us to um, engage with because most of the other scholarships have focused on, you know, the, the evolution of a victim into an agent or basically a very theatrical display of um, their agential acts. In most of my case studies that I encountered, um, they were not necessarily uh, theatrical displays of agency, yet it was a display of self-determination and voice and agency in a very different way. And that is why I struggled a lot with the term agency, because when I was reading these case studies, I found um, 
the traditional understanding of this much debated word agency problematic to my case studies. So I allowed these cases to allow me to open up new analytical possibilities of these subaltern voices, which were hidden in the everyday, not necessarily coming out in protests or riots, right? It was in the everyday by just disobeying certain orders or kind of deserting someone's husbands um, or even uh, poisoning food, which does not necessarily feature that much the poisoning part but in the case studies, but there are cases which I did not end up using. But yeah, so it's it's the everyday, the transience and the tra- temporality of agency, which um, features mainly in, in the situational agency concept that I uh, coin in this book. Thank you so much. And I think that that's so beautifully put. Uh, just a radical democratization of the concept of agency to extend it to the quotidian, the everyday, um, acts of, acts of uh, self-assertion that may not be sort of theatrical or spectacular, but nonetheless sort of assert a sort of, um, assert a sort of like agential resistance uh, in everyday forms. So I want to turn to your first chapter, which is Coolie Women in the Empire's Rubber Garden, because it provides such a detailed historical and contextual background to the phenomenon of coolie labor across the Bay of Bengal. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the specific system of coolie labor in Malaya, which is the Kangani system, and how it differs from the indentured system in places like Fiji, Mauritius, Guyana, that people might be more familiar with. Uh, what are some of the political and economic concerns that precipitated the emergence of coolie labor? And how did coolie women engage with these British policies of promoting labor migration? Thank you. So, um, yes, the Malaysian, the Mal- British Malaya experience or um, usage of um, coolie labor was very different in many ways from the Caribbean um, usage of or systems of labor import. So, as we know, after the abolition of slavery, indentured labor system came in, which um, scholars like you tinker term as the new system of slavery. Right where uh, there was an agreement uh, between the coolies and the the employers, the recruiters who brought them to those plantations um, to labor. Now, in the case of Malaya, um, it's it's important to note that um, Malaya entered into this race of uh, importing labor for plantation purposes much later than the Caribbean. Right. So the first um, experience of Malayan uh, recruiters, they actually wanted to um, focus on indenture. In fact, the very early phase actually focused on indentured, similar kind of um, indentured recruitment. However, when they went to um, recruit in India, they saw all the um, monopolized pockets in India where they had no scope to penetrate. And the um, North and East and West Indian labor um, recruiting markets actually told the earliest kind of recruiters from Malaya that they should go and venture out in South India because that's where you know, uh, there might be opportunity for them to explore labor sources. They did go there and um, 
they they found a lot of labor sources that they could exploit. So they also wanted to make sure that they were recruiting people who were very much um, accustomed to plantation labor. And that is where kind of the the whole middleman concept or the Kangani concept um, starts featuring, that they not only wanted labor sources, but they wanted quality labor sources. And in the process, they thought having a middleman would also be helpful to determine who is a quality laborer um, and not. Now, that was on paper. That did not always kind of materialize in the real um, experiences of labor recruitment. Um, The other thing which is very uh, important to note in the case of British Malaya is that the Kangani system allowed the planters, the administrators in British Malaya, to privilege the recruitment of coolie women specifically or coolie families because they were given the Kanganis who were sent out as recruiters from their own villages. Um, they were given extra money to recruit women or coolie uh, families. And this is rooted in the whole anxiety that the planters and the administrators in British Malaya faced um, around um, early 1900s um, when basically the nationalist movement in India had started popping its head up, right? There was a mushrooming trend um, in nationalist movements. And the the main question, the main uh, mobilizing factor for these nationalist movements was that Cooley, our, our, our Cooley brothers and sisters are being exploited. They are taken, taken away. They're um, mistreated. Um, and we need to do something to stop colonization. So this um, exploitation ends, right? And they, the administrators and planters became very nervous. And they wanted to assure that there was not only a labor supply to feed the current need of labor, but also to make sure there is future uh, continued source of labor. And in that, with that mentality, with that frame of um, mindset, they actually privileged recruitment of women and coolie families so that their bodies could be used not only for labor production, but also labor reproduction for the future so that there is a local kind of labor cushion um, for the future labor needs of Malaya. And that is exactly how, you know, the the, um, labor recruitment um, and uh, labor designs kind of differed. There were overlaps between Caribbean and the Southeast Asian experience, absolutely, but they were also um, distinct or unique in that way um, um, because of these contextual developments in what we call in Bahasa Malay, right? Um, sama sama tapi lain. Yeah, exactly. Same, but same, different. same, but different. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that that's really interesting because it also leads us nicely into uh, your next chapter, Tapping Resources, which really uncovers the central role of coolie women in labor processes on colonial rubber estates in Malaya. And I think that here you pose an intervention against most works in economic history that 
um, that sort of ignore the role of women because you are really sort of foregrounding and censoring the roles played by coolie women in the rubber industry, both productive and reproductive. Um, so here I want to ask you perhaps to elaborate a little bit on how did these women contribute to the rubber industry in colonial Malaya? And in, ad- in addition to that, you trace their active involvement in labor politics from strikes, riots, protests. How were these women involved in these networks of labor activism? And how did their perceived status as vulnerable come to be a resource for many labor activists? Thank you. So um, I think the first where I want to begin um, answering this question is that um, coolie women, when they were migrating to Malaya, they were very conscious of their um, being recruited as a body of labor because they were signing an agreement and uh, they were recruited as a coolie woman instead of in the ship manifest, instead of being just termed as a coolie man plus female relatives, right? So right at the process, right at the moment of migration, they were actually very aware of their value as a migrant labor um, to these other spaces. Um, British Malaya. And upon arrival, what is very striking in the case of British Malaya is that they have their independent pay slips, right? They have their own wage records, unlike in the Caribbean, where you see mostly, in most cases, women are paid a family wage, women are paid wages um, as dependents of their male relatives. That was not the case in British Malaya. They independently had their um, pays and wages, um, and which became very important um, to kind of uh, allow them to understand their value, their contribution to the um, labor and uh, plantation society in Malaya. Now, being said, I mean, that being said, women entered the la- the labor production uh, stages, uh, uh, labor production process in various stages. They entered as weeders who weeded the, the weeds uh, to make sure the rubber uh, plants were, trees were in good health to manufacture, to produce uh, latex. Um, They were crucial tappers. In fact, by the 1920s, 30s, you see the majority of labor on the plantations who were focused on tapping and weeding jobs were women, not men. So visually, too, they saw that they were being, uh, they, they were contributing actively contributing, important contributors to this um, rubber plantation industry. And they also entered the factory in forms of um, labor who crept and made the rubber latex into sheets. Now, this is the the factory is the only space probably in this whole production um, process where women were much less compared to men in terms of number. But... um, you know, in other phases, they were already very much aware of their contribution to the plantation system. What also emphasized their importance as laborers, as contributors to the plantation system and the colonial market was the fact that um, whenever they 
became pregnant or they were expecting, they were given maternity benefits. And that showed them that they are valued for their labor, for their body, and the the reproduction that they are, the labor reproduction that they would engage in. In fact, they were given maternity allowances. They were given more food rations. They were given um, exemptions from certain kind of work. Um, And also they were... um, given daycare privileges. Now, of course, the quality of that daycare is very contested and it was not that good, but there was ayahs or nannies um, in every plantation to basically serve as daycare centers so that the the uh, the motherly duties towards the child did not interfere with the labor duties that was expected from these women. So in these various forms and spaces and capacities, these individual coolie women realized that they were crucial figures um, in this whole plantation process. And in that, in that way, they actually, we find them voicing um, equal pay. I mean, today we think of equal pay negotiations as something very quote unquote modern. I mean, modernity is something contested, but something of the contemporary age, right? But here we have these coolie women who were conscious of their contributions and they were uh, demanding you know, equal pays as their coolie men because they saw them doing equal, if not more work. Um, And in that sense, there was a lot of uh, breaking of kind of workers' solidarity. Like in my chapters two and three, you will see that the coolie men and women are fighting against each other, right? Because the coolie men wanted to um, hold on to their privilege of being the uh, person who brings in the most money to the home, right? The coolie home. But women were like, no, we put in the equal effort, so we deserve the same amount of money. And in some some plantations, the pl- the structure of payment was such that it was a piece rate system. So it doesn't matter what your gender is, as long as you tap so many trees and produce so many buckets of rubber latex, you are going to get that wage. So in that way, there was an gender equality in the pay structure. And that really um, created an issue for the coolie men, and they went into fighting with each other. But also there were moments where these women and men came together in um, various unique partnerships. So, for instance, women being oppressed, uh, pregnant women being abused at work uh, became a unifying cause uh, for the men and women to find solidarity and uh, basically negotiate better working conditions, better pays together. So in those moments, in those fleeting episodic moments, that partnership, that solidarity became happened, I mean, became evident, but it happened rather organically. While in other situations, um, those partnerships were kind of cracked in, for a lack of a better word. So what this chapter actually shows is that these partnerships were temporal, were fleeting, were episodic, as much as the women and their agency was. 
Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I think that that's really insightful as to how these women negotiated all these uh, multiple registers of gendered, uh, gendered hierarchies, um, which is also a theme that's consistent with your next chapter, Managing Partnerships, which turns to the domestic lives of coolie women and uncovers the diverse designs of coolie households, the plethora of intimate relations within these spaces. It's one of my favorite chapters of the book, especially because you argue that um, the stereotype of, quote, domestic violence um, was enabled by a more mundane form of everyday violence generated by colonial capitalism. So here I want to ask you, what is the relationship between these broader sociopolitical processes of capital and the everyday quotidian and conjugal intimacies of these women? And I'm really intrigued by how you take up the category of the everyday um, as opposed to the, to the eventful following Vina Das as a, as a site of analysis. Yeah, so um, I think the main argument in this chapter was to put forward the argument that there was this larger, um, more subtle, right, uh, violence created at the structural level of colonialism, of the plantation structure that entered into the everyday experiences and lives of these women um, and and colonial, uh, sorry, coolie households um, at large. However, what really gets recorded or what finds a privilege in the archival records is the eventful violence that happened in the coolie um, experiences and households, right? Um, Like chopping up um, a partner, right? Uh, Killing, murdering a wife or a wife um, beating up a husband. Those those became more visible theatrical examples of violence and um, that entered into the archives as domestic violence because it was happening you know, in a space that the colonial administrators saw as domestic, but they never questioned, was it domestic to begin with? Because as the chapter and the following chapter shows that many of these marriages were just depot marriages, were just marriages of convenience. And um, these um, coolie men and women who were living as a husband and wife often use their domestic space as a larger economical partnership space to give um, housing or food to other coolies. So it became a transactional space and did not necessarily remain a domestic space in uh, the way the colonial uh, administrators envisioned um, domestic spaces as. But of course, any violence that took place in that space entered the archives as domestic violence. So one of the key uh, aims of that chapter was to question that kind of spatial recognition and classification of domestic spaces. Is that domestic at all? And the second thing was to question the violence because um, the colonial administrators were constantly emphasizing, oh, coolie households were so violent. They are always killing each other. There are domestic violence is basically a key feature of a coolie household. 
right? Where the coolie women were victims and the coolie men were the usual perpetrators. Not only is that classification wrong because violence went both ways, but it also silences, completely erases the violence that the colonial structure, the plantation structure had on these families, right? Um, to begin with, um, the men the, the men were paid more, of course, and the women were paid less. And in many circumstances, the women stayed on in those abusive marriages or abusive partnerships because they knew that on the basis of their um, own earning, they couldn't survive or they couldn't feed their own children. So that kind of separation was uh, denied. Their choice of separating was denied. And that was a violence in, in an everyday format that entered into their lives, giving um, uh, giving them this whole um, violent space to deal with wherein the more violent acts become theatrically visible, right? Um, so I think, you know, the, the main point is that the everyday is as eventful as the events itself. And that is the point that I try to make because um, the events were, of course, were more theatrical, more visible and found more voice in the archives. But the everyday created, you know, snowballed into that more eventful occurrence and is in no way any less in, in no way is the everyday any less eventful or any less violent in these cases. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much for that, because I, I think that really this chapter and the next chapter, Negotiating Intimacies and Moralities, are both thinking about the everyday seriously as a site of a contestation and the everyday as a productive site for uh, certain discourses, certain conceptions of gender and as well as of as well as of like interiority, the public-private sort of divide. Um, in the chapter Negotiating Intimacies and Moralities especially, you talk about how um, the intimate lives of coolie women came to be mobilized both by colonial administrators who were reading them as emblematic of, quote, immorality, as well as by Indian nationalists who used it to argue against colonial irresponsibility. Um, so how were ideals of morality constructed in this context, and how might these cases exemplify the situational agency of these coolie women? Yeah, so um, morality is a constructed and very much debated term, right? And um, um, as Jeffrey Weeks um, shows us that it the, the way the colonizers, the colonial administrators um, at the empire's home in Britain and in the colonies um, visualized um, or understood uh, morality was very much gender-based, was very much race-based, was very much class-based. And that, inf that kind of visualization or understanding of morality entered um, in these uh, colonial contexts, right? Because when... Um, the colonial administrators or judges, magistrates were encountering these uh, uh, husband desertion or wife uh, murdering um, aspects, right, or even adultery. They were judging these cases based on their perceived notion, Victorian ideals of what is morality. 
But in reality, these were not marriages as these Victorian morality uh, definitions of marriages perceived them to be. As I was just mentioning a few minutes ago, many of these coolie men and women were in a marriage of convenience. They were married just on paper, just to enable them to migrate as coolie families. And the onus was on the Kangani who recruited them like that, right? Or, or in fact, even them, because they agreed to um, uh, travel like that. But in most cases, they were not necessarily uh, married in that sense of the term, in, in the more traditional, conventional sense of the term. And whenever there was um, any kind of mismatch of expectations, the, the men and the women did not feel compelled to, uh, you know, go with the traditional understanding of what is morality. They, you know, they, they ventured out, took the women especially took advantage of the sex ratio um, kind of favoring them um, and found other partnerships. And I think that is a great testimony of the courage and the resilience these women had, um, who, of course, did not go out and say, I was a I was in a you know, adulterous relation, did not always, and sometimes they did, but um, they, they took it on them to basically find what is right and what is most suitable for them. Now, this became problematic for the colonial administrators because, of course, they that did not match their uh, traditional conventional understanding of the term morality, um, uh, marriage, and also female situation or female... Um, you know, position in a marriage, in a household. But it also became problematic for the nationalists because, I mean, I mean, not problematic for the nationalists, but actually I find it problematic in the way the nationalists used the term morality because they knew about these depot marriages. But they used the term in the way the morality and the immorality issues as, as the colonial uh, discourses were perceiving them. And they basically adopted that stereotype and said, all our men and women are becoming immoral because of the situation you put them in. It is the problem of the colonizers, which is basically making us as, you know, South Asians, Indians, uh, look bad to the whole world because this is not our culture. So in one way, they are kind of owning it, but in other ways, they are kind of disowning it by saying that it's a colonial problem. And in that way, what really happens is that this morality of coolie marriages, of coolie women, literally becomes an ideological battleground between the nationalists and the colonialists. And, um, you know, but when we go into these case studies, how the women negotiated their voices and choices by playing the the colonialists and the nationalists against each other and they how they advocated for themselves what they needed um, is where we find the situational agency and that allows us to acknowledge their voice which has so very much been muted 
Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, and I think that that leads us nicely to like uh, your next chapter titled Becoming Ranis, which really examines the lives of Kuli women during the Japanese occupation of Malaya and specifically addresses the histories of Kuli women in Malaya enlisted in the Rani of Chansi regiment to fight British imperialism. This is very much a neglected and overlooked history. I, I don't think I've come across much material on this at all. So could you just um, start, us, start us off perhaps by telling us about what were the conditions under which these women joined the RGR and what did their everyday lives look like? How does this enable us to rethink the gendering of political and martial strategies? And how was the space of, quote, nation being envisioned by these women combatants and what accounts for their the identification, their affective identification, identification of the idea of India? So let me start off by giving a little uh, background about where this RJR, the Rani Chasi Regiment, um, emerged from. So it was during the World War II, um, and Malaysia was under the Japanese occupation, and Shubhas Chandra Bose, uh, leading uh, a notable nationalist leader, um, arrived in Southeast Asia, Malaya, Singapore, and started recruiting people with the help of the Japanese um, presence in that space to basically uh, create these armies which would go and fight the British India Army and lead to decolonization of India. Right. Um, so that's a very simplistic you know, explanation of the history, but that's kind of the background. Now, in in his experience in, you know, uh, recruiting people for the India National Indian National Army, which was the men's uh, regiment, he also parallelly was also recruiting an all women uh, Ran, you know, Rani Chasi Regiment, Indian women um, to participate in that call for freedom for India. Now, um, most of the memoirs that actually exist till today are memoirs of the leaders, the more educated um, second generation South Asian women who um, participated in the Rani Chasi Regiment being conscious of this transnational nationalism um, and nationalist uh, movements in India. But what was happening in the plantations during the Japanese occupation was that not so much as the Chinese women's experience, but these Indian coolie women were also facing atrocities from the Japanese soldiers, occupiers of Malaya. The plantations were mostly closed and the men were taken to the death railway, right? And these women were at times starving without work, had no food sometimes, and were constantly under the threat, fear of what the Japanese soldiers might do to them. In fact, in, in that chapter, I record, record a lot of kind of um, cases where women are constantly abused, sexually abused, taken as mistresses, raped uh, by the Japanese soldiers. Now, this was a fear for shared by all the Indian coolie women in these plantations. And um, in this context, when the call for, you know, uh, being recruits for the Rani Chasi regiment came up, 
they found that as an escape. Not to say that they did not understand what India is, but we are talking about the second generation of Indian Kuli women at this point, right? It was um, as much as the first generation along with the second generation. And they knew what India was. They they definitely um, had patriotic feelings, but the immediate reaction to join the RJR was mostly because of the fear they found themselves and the situation that the RJR, the opportunity the RJR offered them. Um, in fact, in most of the uh, interviews and oral history records, what you find in that chapter is that these women were looking for protection and RJR offered them that protection. They offered them food, they offered them um, protection, they offered them um, clothing, and also a sense of uh, being proud uh, for what they are going to contribute in, right? In fact, many women were like um, mentioning that they were not tin soldiers, they were soldiers in in the real way. They were carrying guns, they could fight as well as the men. So there is also this gender negotiation of power and kind of uh, courage, right? Uh, But also there was this other aspect of gendered kind of... um, uh, we've gendered um, notions or gender elements being woven into nationalist or kind of military uh, organization um, in nationalist freedom fights, right? Um, so Shubhash Chandra Bose was, um, of course, visionary and he had organized the INA, but he also knew that the INA was going to face the very difficult situation of um, having the British India Army, which was going to have more weapons and, of course, more soldiers. So they were going to be outnumbered anyway. And the RJR, um, and this is a contested space because various oral history narratives uh, record, record this differently, but it is said that Bose basically had the plan of sending the Rani Chasi regiment first to show that Indian women are bearing arms and ready to fight the war of India's independence. And that would be a psychological warfare, an attack on the British India army, which is which was mostly um, Indian soldiers, right? And that would be an, a, a psychological warfare on their masculinity and, of course, their uh, sense of, you know, belonging and uh, pride for their motherland. And that in that way, he hoped that they would surrender their arms and come and join the INA. So, there, there are a lot of gendered kind of negotiations and gendering of politics and martial strategies that we find through the case studies of the RJR um, recruits and experiences um, in the in the nationalist kind of sen- space. That's incredibly, incredibly interesting. And I'm just also thinking about the amount of like labor that these women contributed to the nationalist cause for at large and how that all that labor is archivally sort of like effaced and, and that you had to sort of like piece this story together. Um, and I guess to wrap things up, what remains of these diverse life worlds today and how do former estate coolies understand their family histories and how do they narrate their uh, subjectivities today? 
As we both know, um, manifestations of contemporary racism against the Indian population in both Malaysia and Singapore reverberate with force today. So what are the stakes of returning to this history of coolie labour? And how do we think about its continuities with um, forms of unfree labour and racial capitalism persisting into our present day moment? Yeah, so I think it is all the more important for us to return to these um, coolie histories um, in the present day because it highlights, it emphasizes the contribution of various communities to the making of this nation of the nations of Malaysia and Singapore, right? And in that way, it kind of shows. Uh, democratizes the concept of Bhumiputra, which is son of soils, right? In that way, doing these histories, going back to these histories, it not only shows the connections, but also uh, allows us to appreciate the contribution of these communities um, and their importance um, to these making of these nations, but also their claim to being equal citizens of these these different spaces, and um, you know, in in terms of answering your question about what kind of continuities we see, um, there are ma- many coolie families um, escaped the plantations. Um, they they went out, but there are also families who are, uh, for a lack of a better word, uh, quote unquote, trapped in that plantation system till date. And I think my um, epilogue um, features three to four case studies like that, where um, the the families are still trapped in those um, you know plantation systems. Yes, of course, those are not necessarily rubber plantations today. They have been transformed into palm oil plantations, but nonetheless, they do exist in those kind of um, situations. And um, there is a lot of continuity, right? The first level of continuity is that the plantation system exists, and they they are still kind of trapped in those situations, um, not necessarily um, always having better experiences but of course it's a free nation the colonial uh, the colonial powers have left so that is a change but there are continuities and similarities in other respects of the coolie families and their ex- um, you know experiences but also there is a continuity in a different kind of way right the south asian labor presence in these southeast asian nations especially malaysia and singapore still goes on in a different context. We find South Asian labor, especially South Indian laborers and Bangladeshi laborers in construction industries, in palm oil plantations, in garment industries. And in many ways, that also adds another layer of continuities, albeit in a different socio-political context. Um, but you know that kind of power... Um, dynamics and challenges of being a migrant laborer in these um, situations still exist. So in many ways, there is a disconnect from the colonial realities, but in many ways, there are there is also an overlap and continuities in the way um, the experiences of the laborers continue today. Thank you so much for that. And before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read us a paragraph from from the book? 
Absolutely, I will be delighted to. So I'm going to read a paragraph from uh, the chapter Negotiating Intimacies and Moralities. There were many cases wherein coolie women consciously played the victim and exploited colonial perceptions of coolie women as passive subjects. In a case presented before the Klang magistrate in February 1935, Periyasami, an estate coolie uh, from Batu Tiga, charged a fellow coolie, Mutasami, with enticing away his wife, Mutama, during October 1932. During the trial, Mutama, in her witness statement, claimed that after consuming some curry, offered by the accused, she did not know what happened and instantly became obsessed with Mutasami and followed him to Telok Anson, um, where they lived as a married couple. Mutasami, denying such allegations, stated, it was Mutama who enticed him and that he was, um, that he was unaware that Muthama was ever married as she had begged him um, to be her husband and not being able to withstand her um, treatment and her experiences, he took her away. When the magistrate demanded proof of marriage, Muthama's father claimed that she was married to Periyasami. Once again, word of mouth uncorroborated uncor uh, by any documentary evidence was proof enough for the magistrate to find Mutasami guilty of wife enticement and sentence him to two years of rigorous imprisonment. The evidence given by witnesses in this case appears contradictory and implausible. While Mutasami feared imprisonment and fines, Mutama arguably feared violence from her husband and chastisement from her family who lived in Malaya. Evidently, it was a case of two consenting individuals in a victimless act of immorality. Upon being dragged to court, both played victim as an act of survivance, but as a result of colonial perceptions of coolie women as victims of enticement rather than as enticers themselves. It was Mutama's story that was believed. That's so poignant. Thank you so much for that. Um, well, Arunima, we've taken up a lot of your time. So as a traditional closing question, what are you currently working on? And can you tell us about your current and future projects? So I'm currently working on a project that actually I had started working on when I was a graduate student um, towards the end of my uh, PhD journey. Um, it was about traveling ayahs and amas um, of South and Southeast Asia in Britain. And the way I got introduced to this was basically a planter's family had an ayah who were going back for their summer vacation to Britain, and they engaged her as a traveling ayah. And that is uh, where I encountered the term. And I absolutely wanted to write another dissertation as if that was possible. Um, <laughs> but um, that is something that I'm working on right now. Uh, about the um, everyday experiences of these um, domestic caregivers um, as migrant laborers between um, 
Britain and South and Southeast Asia. Um, the first of that chapter actually just recently appeared in the Journal of Historical Geography, um, where I deal with the responses of the British um, society and administration of um, the traveling ayahs and amas in Britain. Um, but the book um, is in the works, and that is my next project. Thank you so much. And I am definitely looking forward to it. In fact, I'm just going to go check out your article right after our interview. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Arunima. And thank you so much, listener, for listening to today's episode in which we explored fleeting agencies by Professor Arunima Data, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. You can find the book on bookshop.org or other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ung. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you.